Amen. All right. Here we go. We're diving in to Revelation. Pull that open in a minute. All right. I'm Rachel Wartman. If I didn't get a chance to meet you guys, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, hello, Grant Wartman. And um, I have the, the honor of trying to sum up 22 chapters in about four weeks. Praise God. So uh, it's going to be wild. And I, I reserve the right to extend to five weeks, but we're going to try really hard to keep it at four um, but I wanted to do today, I wanted to give you guys an overview of the book of Revelation. So I think most of you guys know we're starting a new series. We're calling this series Revealing Jesus because in my opinion, the book of Revelation is specifically designed to reveal who Jesus is to us. So before we dive in, I need a show of hands. Who here, and this is a no shame thing, who here has never read anything from Revelation? Raise your hand. Anybody? Anybody? Okay, a few of you, okay. How many of you guys that have read Revelation find it to be utterly confusing? Show of hands. Praise God. Okay, great. So hopefully by the end of this series, you will not feel that way anymore. Um, I wanted to let you know of an incredible resource that's available online um, that some of the stuff I'm talking about comes from. Uh, There's a pastor that that we've been recently connected to. He's actually speaking in our training school in a couple of weeks. His name is Bill Vanderbush, and uh, he has incredible revelation. So if you go to his website, billvanderbush.com, he has a series called Restoring Revelation. It's a nine-part 12-hour series that will cost you the best $33 you've ever spent. So if you are listening to what I'm talking about today and in the subsequent weeks and you're going, I want to know more, go get this series. It's incredible. So I just wanted to plug that for all of you guys. Um, There's no way I could cover everything that he talks about in that series. It's just not possible on a Sunday morning. So if you're interested in this stuff, grab that. All right, let's talk about what the book of Revelation is. Okay, so everybody knows it's the last book in your Bible. So uh, we don't have it on the screen because we're going to literally fly through three chapters of it. So if you have a Bible app, pull it up. Uh, If you don't have a Bible app and you have a paper Bible, you can go ahead and flip to it. We're going to get there in a minute. But the book of Revelation is considered to be Jewish apocalyptic literature. That's what it's called. The reason why it's important for you to know that is because it's the only book in the New Testament that is that style. Okay? So what that means is Revelation is actually a lot more in line with books like Daniel, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah than it is with books like Ephesians, Colossians, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's a completely different thing, and therefore, the way we approach it needs to be completely different. Uh, Revelation is a prophetic, it is filled with symbolism. It is a poet's delight. (laughs) If you are an artistic person, Revelation is the book for you. I mean, literally, there's so much symbolism. Next week and the week after, we're going to dive into some of that symbolism. I'm going to show you probably what it actually is speaking about. Uh, We might get into some Bill Gates conspiracies. We might get into some interesting stuff. So it's going to be a fun couple of weeks diving into this. Um, But it's Jewish apocalyptic literature. So there's a couple of major themes. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. This is the point of Revelation. This is why it's here for you, okay? Number one. It is revealing Jesus as the Christ, okay? I know that, Rachel. It's literally in the name. Well, okay, but that's the major theme, right? It's revealing Jesus as the Christ. It is also revealing the supremacy of Jesus. So what does this mean? The book of Ezekiel, what you're going to find in this series is that Daniel and Ezekiel both have incredible parallels to the book of Revelation, okay? Ezekiel prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem from the Babylonians, and there's a similar arc, which is it's bad, it's bad, it's really bad, it's really bad, and then God comes through. 
And Revelation has similar arc to it, right? It's bad, it's bad, there's a lot of, oh, what is this? And then God becomes the victor. And the reason why we focus on this is because we cannot afford to come into agreement with fear about anything in this book. Amen? So I am telling you, if you read Revelation and you become fearful, you're reading it wrong. I'm just going to let it sit for a second. Because God did not give this book to scare the pants off of you. It's not the way that he was. And I'm going to show you that. Probably we'll dive into that next week. I'm not sure. But we need to understand Revelation is revealing the supremacy of Christ. And it's revealing Jesus the victor. The ultimate victor. All right. Saying so much, my throat's like, eh. Okay. Two other themes. Number number three. Uh, Revelation is hope for the future. Yes, thank you. Hope for the future. Okay, so you might think, well, isn't Revelation the doom of the future? Well, you're going to be surprised. Remember, as you're reading it, Revelation is hope for the future. Sorry, I hate the sound of people eating, and I just did all that to you. I grossly apologize. Uh, lastly, again, I'm going to echo this again. Uh, we, the, the major theme of Revelation is do not enter into agreement with fear. So 1 John tells us the perfect love casts out fear. Isn't it interesting that John writes 1 John about the love of God, and he writes Revelation, and he's saying to you, don't be afraid, okay? I could just, if you hear nothing else today, hear that. All right, that's the major themes. Who was it written by? Written by this guy named John, who we think, almost positive, is the same John, the son of Zebedee, the apostle who Jesus loved. That's the the one who wrote this. I'm going to tell you a legend. You guys ready? Campfire, s'mores, here comes the folklore, because nobody knows if this is true, and we won't know until we get to heaven. So here's how the legend goes. John as an apostle sent out from Jerusalem, goes and does apostolic things, and they try to martyr him. Has anybody ever heard this story? It's an old legend, okay? There's just no historical evidence, but that doesn't mean it's true or not true. And so the theory is they tried to martyr him by putting him in a pot of boiling oil, I think it was, and he doesn't die. He has a Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego experience, and they go, what are we gonna do with you? We're gonna send you to Patmos. That's how the theory goes. Is it true or not? I don't know. That's the theory. Then John goes on. He comes back from Patmos at some point and goes on to live a really amazing life. Do you want to know where he lived his life? Modern day Turkey. Now that's going to become interesting because when we dive into the first three chapters, you're going to see these seven churches in chapters two and three are in Turkey. Kind of interesting, right? So the churches that God is giving Jesus, uh, Jesus is giving John this revelation about are probably churches he was a part of. Okay, uh, let's look at this. All right, I gotta get through some of the backstory before we can dive into it. So um, I want us to look at the four main categories people view Revelation through. Rachel, why are you boring me with all this? Here's why, thank you for asking. Uh, the, we, we all, you're all gonna fit in one of these categories. So why do you wanna identify it? Because we may not all land in the same category and that's okay. None of us are gonna know for sure until we're in heaven. Okay, there's, there's enough discrepancies in the historical documentation to where it's like, it's probably this, but it might not be. Or you could say from your viewpoint, it's probably this, but none of us can say definitively, this is what revelation means, okay? So I say that because you need to know you have permission to meet with God and decide which of these four or make your own viewpoint you have about revelation. Here's the four. The first one is this, the idealist. 
don't know if you guys have ever heard this before, but this is a popular viewpoint of Revelation. I don't think I know anybody that's an idealist, but here's what an idealist says about Revelation. Oh, Revelation is not practical. It's an allegorical story about good and evil. That's what the idealist would say. I personally don't fall in that category, but if you do, elbow high five in COVID days and we'll move on. That's the idealist. The second category is the historicist. A lot of people believe this. They see Revelation as a symbolic representation of the history from the age of the apostles to the end of time. I also am not in that camp, but it's fine. That's what some people see it as. And then the, the next two are where we're all gonna probably go, I'm one, or the, I'm one of these, okay? I'll tell you what I am when, when I'm done talking about it. The, the next one is the preterist. Anybody ever heard the word preterist? It's the Latin word for past, okay? So preterists look at the book of Revelation and say, the bulk, if not all of this chapter, all this book has already happened. This is in the past. Those would be somebody who's a preterist. Some of you guys are like, that's a thing? There's people out there who believe it already happened? And then the final category, you guessed it, is the futurist, okay? Now don't raise your hand to tell me what you are. But a lot of people have the futurist mentality, which is nothing in Revelation has happened yet, and therefore it's all coming in the future. And if you're a futurist, you probably feel a tremendous amount of fear when you read Revelation. If you're a preterist, you might not, because you feel like it's already happened. So you guys are all wondering, Rachel, tell us what you are. I'll tell you, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> just being silly. For me, I actually fall in the camp of I'm a partial preterist, partial fruit futurist. Well, I didn't give you that as a category, but now you know, you can be that too if you choose to be. Here's how I believe it. I actually think there is compelling, incredibly compelling evidence that the bulk of Revelation already happened. And we're gonna dive into some of that. You can examine it for yourself. But I do believe there's some things in Revelation that has not happened yet, i.e. Jesus coming back or the thousand years where the devil is uh, in captivity, and so there is no evil on the earth. Doesn't appear to me like either of those have happened yet, right? Uh, but there are some things that look like it's happened. Okay, so that being said, and I'm, I'm going to talk just for a few more minutes about this kind of stuff, and then we'll dive into the actual text. That being said, the reason why nobody knows for sure is because nobody knows for sure when Revelation was actually written, Okay. There's two big debates. The first one is that it was written in about 65 AD, 65 years after, well, I'm not even gonna get into that, 65 AD. Uh, and then the other theory is that it was written in 95 AD, okay? Big difference in time differences. Here's what you need to know. If you go Google, when was Revelation written? You're gonna find all these articles where people say this quote, most scholars believe, Okay? And it's true. Most scholars believe Revelation was written in 95 AD because this guy named Arrhenius, who was the father of the church in France, in case you wanted to know, I think this was in somewhere around 150 AD, he knew Eusebius, who apparently knew Polycarp, who was one of John's disciples, who had said at one point he thought it was in 95 AD. So that's the documentation, it is that loose that we're going off of to say 100% it was written in 95 AD. If you're like me and you're looking at that, you're going, this doesn't feel as concrete as I would like it to be. This is not like a Dead Sea Scroll they did a carbon dating on. This is a third party account. Why does this matter? Because how many of you guys are familiar with the Jewish revolt in 66 AD? Anybody? Oh, you guys are in for a treat. Woo, okay. In 70 AD, Rome is done with Jerusalem, and they squash it. They kill, the, they kill thousands of Jews. They end Jerusalem. They tear apart the temple. And that all happened in 70 AD. 
Why does this matter? If Revelation was written in the mid to late 60s, then Revelation is a prophetic word to the church about the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which actually happened within two years of the book being written when everybody was killed. Now catch this. There's a verse in Revelation 11 where an angel says to John, he gives him a measuring rod and says, go and measure the temple. This would be difficult in 95 AD considering there was no temple anymore. The place that he was instructed to measure didn't exist. Now, in the same way there's compelling evidence for that, there's a little bit of evidence that makes you think 95, so I just want to be really transparent with you. But here's what I believe. I believe God gave revelation to save the church from what was coming to Jerusalem. Here's why. Did you know that Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, he has almost the exact same revelation that John does? What? He has a revelation about these beasts coming out of the sea. One of them looks like a lion. One of them looks like a leopard. One like a bear. One like something he can't really tell what it is. God says to him, the lion is Nebuchadnezzar. He has no idea who the other three are. Fast forward to Revelation. John has this vision of beasts, four beasts coming out of the sea. One of them looks like a lion. One of them looks like a bear. One of them looks like a leopard. Wait, what? It's the same thing, except this time, so much history has passed, John actually knows who these people were. We're going to get into this next week, just whetting your appetite. So here's what's interesting. When Daniel has this series of revelations, he also has a revelation of the throne room. He sees a lake of fire coming from the throne, which is also in Revelation. He sees Jesus with white hair, which is also in Revelation. So bookmark this. You can do your own study later. And then at the end of this series of revelations, God says to Daniel, seal this up in Daniel 12. This is not for this time. So Daniel is like, Ah, this is an amazing series of revelation. Then God goes, so glad you got it. This is not for now. Seal it up. This is for a time way in the future. So then when we go to Revelation, let's just do it right now. Revelation chapter 1. John, as he's talking about this series, this is what he says, uh, the series of visions. Uh, He says, verse 1, this is the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to share with his loving servants, which must occur swiftly. Fast forward two more verses in verse three. John says it's going, the time is in at hand. We're gonna get to there in a second. Why is this important? They have the same revelation and God says to Daniel, this is for a long time away, but God says to John, this is for very soon. So that should indicate to us if it was not yet happened some 2,000 years later, why didn't John also be, get told this is for a time in the future? you think about that? So when I look at some of that stuff, I go, okay, wait a second. I think this revelation was actually a prophetic word to the church. Now, let me tell you what happened, okay? There's a, uh, anybody familiar with the guy Josephus Flavius? Anybody? He's an old, very famous, he's old, well, he's very old, because he lived in (laughs) 70 AD. Uh, But he's a a very famous scholar. He was, uh, not a scholar, a historian. He was meticulous. He was like Dear Diary multiple volumes of diaries. Like the sun was in the fifth degree to the left today. I mean, he was so meticulous in everything he said, and he did it for Roman historical purposes. So this is a historical document. It's not in the Bible. It is multiple books you can read. Uh, I'll give you some of the names of them next week if you want to read this for yourself. So Josephus Flavius says, when the Jewish revolt was happening, Okay, the first battalion of Roman soldiers comes up and starts to surround the city. And this is going to be so important for all the coming weeks. So uh, do yourself a favor and start Googling it later. You'll be so interested. So when the Roman soldiers show up, 
All the Christians go, my super ears are burning, right? They all go, wait a second, this is that. This right here is that happening. You're gonna see next week that Matthew 24, when Jesus says, woe to you, you nursing mothers, it's gonna be so difficult. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus was, I'm gonna say 99.9% talking about Jerusalem being invaded. Why? Because he said, this is gonna happen in this generation. Did you know the 70 AD Jewish issue where they were all obliterated happened 38 years after Jesus said that, and a Jewish generation is 40 years long? So this should be giving you hope for the future, okay? So here's what God says. So they, they, the, sorry, so Josephus says that the Christians began to see it. There was a, I wasn't gonna share this, but this is crazy. Josephus records for 12 months, people, over Jerusalem was a constellation that had the sword, a tail of a sword. It literally was in the air every single night for 12 months. You remember Jesus says in, John, in Matthew 24, there's gonna be signs in the heavens, and there was. And so the, the Christians at the time are seeing the sign in the heavens, and they start seeing the other signs, and they go, whoa, 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 this is that. We got to get out of here. And Josephus records not one Christian was killed, not one. The entire church who trusted Jesus and trusted the prophecy of John got the heck out of there. They went on this incredibly difficult foot journey to this mountain called Mount Pella, where they stayed there for a series of years while this was all happening, and Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. Okay. It's pretty crazy. Uh, let me just say one other backstory, then we'll just dive right into chapter one. Uh, okay, so if you're looking at it like I am and you're saying, listen, there's some incredibly compelling evidence that Revelation was a prophetic word to the church at the time and that this all was, that a lot of it was fulfilled in 70 AD, then what we can look and see is this. Chapters one through four of Revelation are John's present. It's happening. He's, he's there in his present. It's all happening. These are the letters to the churches we're going to look at today. And then chapters about five through 19 were John's future but they're our past, okay? And then when you get into chapter 20 to 22 is the part where we can say, if it's already happened, it has not happened in a quantifiable way that's obvious. And in my opinion, I think it's yet to come. It's what we have to look forward to, and it's the good stuff, so it's good. Okay, so that being said, let's dive in. You guys, uh, hope, you're, hope you're doing okay. It's a lot. Uh, let's dive into chapter one. So if you've got your Bible, I don't have it on the screen because it's just so many verses. But I already read to you that it's saying it's coming swiftly. So I want you to look at Re uh, Revelation chapter one, verse three. And I'm gonna read from the Passion Translation, and this is embarrassing, but it's the large print Bible I have in my home, and uh, it's really, there's a lot on Revelation. So I'm gonna read it to you, the Passion Translation, so I can literally see it to read it. Um, here's what it says. A joyous blessing rests upon the one who reads this message and upon those who hear and embrace the words of this prophecy, for the appointed time is in your hands. This word hands also means it's at hand. It's imminent, it's coming very soon. Two things to note about this. Number one, you get blessed just by reading Revelation. So if you're looking for a blessing in your life, just read the book and you got one. This is the crazy, all the other Bible stuff, it's like you gotta do it to get the blessing, right? You have to actually obey. And God is saying, you'll be blessed just by reading it. Why? This is my interpretation of this. Because those who read it would have seen the signs and known it was time to get the heck out of Dodge. 
And so the blessing that God is putting on them for those who read it and embrace that it's a prophecy was that their spirit would begin to testify when they saw the Roman soldiers come. We're going to walk through all of this next week, and you're going to see in, in incredible detail that this is probably a very accurate prophecy to the first century church. All right, so for the sake of time, we're not going to read every verse, but um, let's keep going. So John is basically testifying to who Jesus is, that we are his kingdom, verse 6, and to the one who has appointed us as his kingdom priest. I love this. Um, Just more about our our place and his place as our God. Verse 8, I'm the beginning and the end. This would be to a first century believer, like the A to Z, you know, we would see it like A to Z. When we get into some of the symbolism here in just a few verses, I want you to think about symbolism to, to uh, I want you to think about it like this. If I wanted you to understand something, but I was speaking in code, I would say something like this. I saw a vision of these men, and they were all wearing the same color shirt, but they had different numbers, and their shoulders looked to be bolstered by some sort of material, and there was a song playing, and they all went down on their knee. Can you guys picture who I'm describing? In this day and age, we would know, oh, those are athletes, because we understand the symbolism. So as we move through Revelation, remind yourself, this symbolism meant something to the people who were reading it at the time, okay? We might not understand. I'm going to do my best to try to help you see what it is, but that's, that will help you go, what is that? Some people that are futurists, they look at this and they say when it gets into like scorpions and all this kind of stuff, like... Well, that must be nuclear weapons, or that must be helicopters, because they're trying to put that symbolism in today's world. And okay, might we be surprised that a nuclear bomb gets called a scorpion someday? We might. Or you might be surprised to know that the catapults that the Romans used to besiege Jerusalem was called a scorpion. It's an interesting tidbit. (laughs) So when you read it and you're going, oh, it looks like a scorpion, and then the catapult shows up a year later, literally named a scorpion, and all of the believers are going, oh, this is that. Catching me? So the symbolism is actually important. All right, let's get to this amazing picture of Jesus. So verse 12. We're still in chapter 1, but we're going to get through 3 today. Bless us, Lord. Uh, And so verse 12, okay? It says, this is him talking. He's in the spirit, and he hears this trumpet that also has a voice, which is crazy to think about. And the trumpet says, write all this down. And then he says, when I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, you're about to hear the word seven a bunch, okay? And walking among the lampstands, I saw someone like a son of man. Now, pause for a minute and remember, who did, what did Jesus refer to himself as? You guys remember this? Son of man, okay? So he sees Jesus there wearing a full-length robe with a golden sash over his chest. This picture is a priest's robe. This is important to us because Jesus has, and we, Grant has talked about this before, but maybe you guys weren't here for that message, but when Jesus resurrected from the cross, like he goes to the cross, he was resurrected, when he takes his place in heaven, he became our final high priest. So part of his job in the heavens is to fulfill the job the high priest had on the earth. And what John is seeing is Jesus in his final state, which I think is really a powerful symbol. And also, this whole section of scripture is the same image Jesus showed Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, okay? In case you're curious about that kind of stuff. 
So verse 14, his head and his hair were white like wool, white as glistening snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His, uh, let's see, his feet were gleaming like bright metal as though they were a glowing fire, and his voice was like the roar of many rushing waters. Now, this is what we need to understand. In his right hand, so just do me a favor and hold your right hand out, okay? Just, just as you read this. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. That's an interesting picture. And his face was shining with the brightness of the blinding sun. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as good as dead. Let's pause there. Do you guys remember in the transfiguration, uh, which was Matthew? Matthew 17 is the only part of the Gospels that actually makes the note that when Jesus was transfigured with Moses and Elijah, the disciples fell down face down like they were dead. Remember that? And John was one of the three. And what does Jesus do when, when the voices are done? Jesus comes and he reaches down and he picks the disciples up and says, don't be afraid. Let's keep going. This is the same picture to the same disciple happening right here. What we're going to see is that Jesus is holding these seven uh, stars, which he explains what they are in a second. And then they fall down at his feet as good as dead. But then he laid his right hand on me. So do the stars, do they go away? Is he still holding them? Because then in a moment, they're back in his hand. This is how we have to understand. You're going to see through Revelation. The stars are in the air, then they fall, then they're back again, then they get dim, and then they're somehow back again. So the stars have a lot of meaning, okay? So then Jesus says, when I saw him, I fell down at his feet, verse 17, as good as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, and I heard his reassuring voice. I love how the Passion Translation says that. Saying, don't yield to fear. I'm the beginning and the end, the living one. I was dead, but now look, I'm alive forever, and I hold the keys that unlock death and the unseen world. Now I want you to write what you've seen, what it is that will be revealed after the things that I have revealed to you. I said that wrong. What will be after the things I've revealed to you? I want you to see this picture that John is face down on his ground, and he's like, I don't know what to do, right? He's, he's pretending like he's dead. He's playing dead. And Jesus comes and picks him up and says, I don't want you to be afraid. And what's happening here is this beautiful exchange between the disciple Jesus loved and the resurrected God. And what I believe Jesus is saying is he's inviting John to see it's still me. It's me. It's me who was there with you when you were freaked out when Moses and Elijah showed up. And this is like that plus a million, right? Because now you're seeing this resurrected. It's, it's an incredible picture, the love and the care that Jesus has. And I think this continues. And in my heart, when I read this, I'm overwhelmed with the the tender affection that Jesus has towards his people, because look at this, he's holding these seven stars in his right hand. In Jewish culture, the right hand is the hand of strength. Okay, so this, the fact that it says right hand is incredibly important. And he's saying, I, I, my strength is sustaining these seven stars. And he goes on in verse 20. He says, the mystery of the lampstands and the seven stars is this. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. And the seven stars in my right hand are the seven messengers of the seven churches. So in about the 60s, AD 60s, there were not that many churches outside. That, like the gospel had not reproduced to the greatest. I mean, it was like every decade, lots and lots of churches were being added. So I don't know this for sure, but is it possible there were only seven churches in the Turkey area at the time? By the time we get to 95 AD, there's a lot more than seven for sure. And this word messengers here in, uh, what is this, verse 20, this word messengers gets superimposed with the word angels. 
but it doesn't always mean angels. Sometimes in the Bible, this exact same Greek word that people apply to be angels actually talks about a literal messenger, like, hey, can you go tell that person that? And that person goes, and they are a messenger. So it's very possible what Jesus is saying is the seven churches, that the the messengers to these churches, whether they were pastors or leaders or whatever, that he's actually sustaining them in his hand. And I just think this is such a beautiful picture of the care that God gives towards us as people. Okay, let's go, uh, let's look at the letters. So then he starts to say, I got stuff to say to you. That's my paraphrase, right? Jesus is like, write this down, John, because I got a spanking for each one of your churches. That's how I interpret that, uh, in the love of God, of course. But um, we're not gonna dive into every single rebuke, but I do wanna look at this first one, Christ's letter to Ephesus. So there's a church in Ephesus, and Jesus in every single letter is like, you're doing this good, you're doing this bad, except for one where he's like, everything you do is bad, and that one's unfortunate. But, um, but what he's doing here, and what we're going to see in verse 7 is he says, to those whose heart is open, listen carefully to what the Spirit is saying now to all the churches. What this means is there's a direct application to the people it was written to, but there's also an application for you and I. This is one of those things in scriptures where it has multiple layers of meaning. And what's really cool about this is in these letters, there are seven promises to overcomers. If you will overcome whatever it is that church was dealing with, if you're dealing with that in your own life and you will overcome, you actually get to experience the blessing that Jesus laid out here as well. So these are seven promises to your life, seven reasons why it pays to be obedient to what Jesus is asking you to do. Amen? That's what we're going to fixate on. But in this letter to Ephesus, he's, he's like, I know you guys have done so many great things. You've worked hard and you've persevered. You don't tolerate evil. You've tested those who claim to be apostles and you've proved that they're imposters. I know how you've bravely endured trials. This sounds good, right? Look, you're doing all the right things. But what he's saying is you're doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. Because somewhere along the line, this church began to prioritize the right thing as opposed to the right motivation. And what Jesus is saying is, I always see your motivation, and it's a problem to me that you're motivated to be right for the sake of being right, as opposed to being right because you're being fueled by my love, amen? And then he actually says, I'm gonna come to you. If you don't repent, I will come to you. This is uh, verse five. And I'll remove your lampstand from its place of influence if you do not repent, which is tough. So remember just the previous chapter, there's these seven lampstands that Jesus is walking through. When I look at this, I see this as a picture of the influence that the churches carry in the atmosphere. So our, our, all of our churches, when God is leading a church, it's designed to have an impact in the heavens that bring heaven's ways to earth, amen? And so what Jesus is saying here, kind of like if you look deeper into it, it's like, oh wow, so that church had an influence in the region that Jesus was more than capable of turning down, turning off, and removing it. And if he can remove it, that means he can use it. Does that make sense? And I think that's actually encouraging to us as we think about our place as believers, especially in 2020, that we actually do have a place to influence in the heavenly realms. Um, then we get to this first blessing, verse 7. Those, uh, the one whose heart is open to hear, let him hear it carefully. To the one who overcomes, I will give access to the feast on the fruit of the tree of life that's found in the paradise of God. All right, for the sake of time, we're going to skip Smyrna. Uh, not great things happening there. You can read it. Then Pergamum. I do want to say about Pergamum, I see Pergamum like the churches in the Middle East or like Seattle and Portland today. This is what it says. I know where you live, where Satan sits enthroned. 
yet you still cling faithfully to the power of my name? I think this is a really beautiful thing that Jesus looks and says, I understand the situation that you're in, the atmosphere around you. And I get, I mean, no doubt this church wasn't doing everything perfect, right? But they were trying in midst of incredible pushback. And I just, I, when I read this, it's like my heart just weeps for some of those churches that are in um, really, really dark places trying their best. Uh, and then I just want to make one note of this in verse when we go down to the promise, verse 17, to everyone who's victorious, I will let him feast on the hidden manna and give him a shiny white stone. At this time, uh, white stones had two meanings. The first one was, if you were on trial, you actually had a black stone and a white stone. And if you were guilty, you'd cast the black one. If you were not guilty, you'd cast the white one. So there's a chance that what Jesus is saying here is that I'm giving you the not guilty stone, that, that basically what the cross has done for you renders you not guilty, which is a biblical truth. But there's another application here where white stones were sometimes used as admission tickets to different events. And it's almost like God has a double meaning here where he's saying, uh, when you overcome, I actually invite you into feast with me. I actually invite you into the, to the wedding banquet that, um, that I'm having. And I just think that's really cool. All right, uh, Thyretia, Thyretia, I don't know how you say that. Some real intense things to the prophetess calling herself Jezebel. Let's just read one verse in this, verse 20. But I have this against you. You are forgiving that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and seducing my loving servants. She is teaching that it is permissible to indulge in sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. So if we close our eyes and just think about 2020 for a moment, Jesus, I think, is still saying this to us today. And I, this is a whole teaching for another day, but the spirit of Jezebel, the Jezebel spirit that we love to just say is, is a dominating woman, which is a very inaccurate picture of what the spirit does. The spirit of Jezebel always leads people to sexual immorality. That's, that's the end goal, sexual perversion of some kind. So when Jezebel is working in a church, you'll see that it's what the end goal is to try to get immorality to happen. And what Jesus is highlighting here is it's, there's so much... In, um, this spirit has been so ingratiated in you guys that you've even thought it was okay to be sexually immoral, which the Bible says it's not. Does this make sense? And his challenge, which I find incredibly amazing, his rebuke is that the leaders did not actually deal with it, that they were kind of passive towards it. And then some really bad things happen after that for those. Uh, like verse 22, now I will lay her low with terrible distress or sickness along with her adulterous partners if they don't repent. So, um, Thank you, Lord. <laughs> it's intense. Uh, I love this in verse 23. He says, Then all the congregations will realize that I am the one who thoroughly searches the most secret thoughts and the innermost being. In other words, there ain't no fool in me, says the Lord. Um, okay, let's, let's skip Sardis. Let's skip Philadelphia. It's great stuff in here. Um, great promises for you to overcome. What I want to do is spend the rest of our time talking about Laodicea. So let's read this. This is the last one in chapter 3. Verse 14, he says, write the following to the messenger, uh, messenger of the congregation in Laodicea, for these are the words of the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. This is what Jesus says, I know all that you do. I know that you are neither frozen in apathy nor fervent with passion. Your translation may say, I know you're neither hot or cold. How I wish you were one or the other, but because you are neither cold nor hot, but lukewarm, I am about to spit you from my mouth. For you claim I am rich getting richer. I don't need a thing. Yet you are clueless that you're miserable, poor, blind, barren, and naked. 
So I counsel you to purchase gold perfected by fire so that you can be truly rich. Purchase a white garment to cover and clothe your shameful Adam nakedness. Purchase eye salve to be placed on your eyes so that you can truly see. All those I dearly love, I unmask and train. So repent and be eager to pursue what is right. Behold, I'm standing at the door knocking. If your heart is open to hear my voice and you open the door within, I will come into you and feast with you and you will feast with me. And then here's the promise. And to the one who conquers, I will give the privilege of sitting with me on my throne just as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The one whose heart is open, let him listen carefully to what the spirit is saying now to the churches. All right. So I remember being like 15 and reading this for the first time and thinking, well, I want to be hot for God, right? Because our Western mind goes hot and cold. No, you, hot's good. Hot's passion. Like, we want that. And I also remember thinking, that seems so weird that God would be okay with people being cold. It's like, uh, hate me, love me, that's great. Trying to figure it out, you're gross to me. And I had the hardest time understanding that. Like, that doesn't line up with the heart of God. And what I came to discover, and this is what I want to show you guys today. Let's talk about Laodicea as a city. This is a wealthy city on a hill, okay, in, Tur in what is modern-day Turkey. Now, catch this. To the east of Laodicea was uh, uh, 10 kilometers east. So this is 6.2 miles. I did the math for you ahead of time because we all know quick math is not my strength. So uh, to the east, six miles away, is a city called Eropolis. This was a city that was known for its hot spring. Oh, here we go. It was a famous Roman spa of the day. People traveled to Eropolis to be healed by the hot waters that they had naturally flowing in them. 14 and a half kilometers to the west in a city called Colossa. You might be familiar with the book of Colossians is written to them. Colossa was known for their refreshing, freezing cold water source. Well, this is interesting. So Jesus is addressing Laodicea, and he's talking about hot water and cold water. And then he talks about lukewarm water. And here's what Laodicea did. They were shrewd business people. They were a trade port. They were a pretty wealthy city, and they were incredibly self-sufficient. And so they did not want to borrow water from Colossa, and they did not want to borrow water from Aeropolis. So they built a clay pipe tunnel 70 kilometers, which is like 43 miles, down to the south so they could have their own water supply versus borrowing it from six miles away. Because of the way that clay transports water, this is back in like the 50s, 60s AD, uh, and the way they built the pipe, uh, the water was cooking in the hot Middle Eastern sun all the way from the south for the 43 miles that it took to get to Laodicea. By the time it got to the people, it was putrid and lukewarm and nobody liked it. It's true. So you can throw this picture up there, Tim. This is the fragments of this pipe. It's been, it's been discovered in the last few years through some archaeological digs. There's two of them. So this is how it looked. You can go to the next one, too. 70 kilometers, 40-something miles of this clay pipe. Some of it was underground, just barely. A lot of it was above ground. Go back to the other one, Tim. So can you see they, like, encased it? The water actually had so much problems that it eroded inside the pipe. If you, you can actually Google this and find a bunch more pictures. They just weren't quality enough that we could put, they would be too grainy. But isn't this crazy? So this is what Jesus is saying to this church. Listen, because you chose to be self-sufficient in every way, because you won't be a blessing to anyone, because you feel like you don't even need me, you've made comfort your God, 
I don't even want to be with you. I think you are the same as the water that you sourced to yourself, which none of them liked. A couple other interesting things to note about Laodicea. It was actually a medical capital of, the, of their area, and there was a physician there uh, at one time who was very well known, and his passion was disease of the eyes. This is true. And he actually concocted a salve for eyes to help with certain diseases of the eyes. And Laodicea also, as I said, was a trade city, right? So they actually built their own gigantic trading spot where they would trade textiles and garments. So let's look again at what his what Jesus's rebuke is okay let's go back in verse 17 for you claim I'm rich getting richer and I don't need a thing and we know that this is true for Laodicea that they were very proud of their self-sufficiency you're clueless that you're miserable poor blind barren and naked so I counsel you to purchase gold perfected by fire this phrase perfected by fire speaks about faith It speaks about letting God grow your faith. When you perfect something by fire, what you do, it's like tempering steel. You guys familiar with this in the Middle Ages? You put it in the fire, you put it in the cold bucket. Then you go back in the fire, back in the cold bucket. And the back and forth makes it really strong. This is the picture of perfecting something by fire. So he's saying, get yourself a better faith. And then he's saying, purchase a white garment to cover your nakedness. Where would they purchase that? In their big place that they built to do trade. Purchase eye salve to be placed on your eyes. This is like one of the only places in the area that you could buy eye salve because of this doctor. I find this to be crazy. Jesus is speaking directly to their culture at that time. And the thing is, if he's doing it for Laodicea, he's doing it for each of these other churches. Just we might not have the historical information to know that. So... This is what's crazy. Verse 19, all those I dearly love, I unmask and train. What is he saying here? He's saying, listen, your lack of input to others and lack of letting others input to you is not who I am. I did not design you to be self-sufficient. I did not design you to be proud as though you are better than everybody else. The crazy thing about this pipe was that just a few years after it was built, an earthquake came and destroyed it. It's really unfortunate for them, because I can't even imagine how difficult it was to build that 40-some miles at that time in life. Turkey actually was riddled with earthquakes. We're going to see that next week a little bit. Um, And eventually, Laodicea in particular was destroyed by two or three earthquakes before they all quit living there. That's what happened in the history of it. Um, But their pipe was destroyed, so it was like a vain effort anyway. And what I believe that Jesus is saying to us through this is there's an invitation for all of us to reject self-sufficiency. There's an invitation for you and I to reject this idea that we don't need something from God. I think the American church has a lot in line with Laodicea because we, we kind of believe that we can take care of ourselves on our own, and a lot of us can. And Jesus' rebuke was not that they had money, it was about the state of their heart. It wasn't that they had, you know, he was, his rebuke wasn't, oh, I'm, you know, it's like, I want you to be poor. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, in your uh, wealth, you've insulated yourself so that you don't give, you don't receive, and you've become unlike my heart. But then he gives us this invitation, and this is just beyond. He says, behold, verse 20, I'm standing at the door knocking. And if your heart is open to hear my voice and you open the door within, I will come to you and I will feast with you. And what he's saying about this is there's two doors. In these chapters of Revelation, there's a picture of two doors. 
There's a door in heaven that is permanently open now. This is what happened on the cross. The veil was torn. The door in heaven is open. The door that we experience in our own hearts is the door that can close. God will never close the door towards you. But we choose to close the door within. This is why it says, if you'll open the door within, it's our decision how we're going to posture ourselves with the Lord. And he says, but if you'll do that, I will come in there. And then, and then he begins to give this picture. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago with this um, uh, example or exercise we did about where you are in the throne room, if you guys remember that. Um, but he says in verse 21, and to the one who conquers, I'll give the privilege of sitting with me on my throne. So if you're familiar with the Ark of the Covenant, I should have gotten a picture of it. I'm sorry, I don't. You can Google a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. And what you're going to see is this box that would hold, the, it held the Ten Commandments, it held, I think it was Aaron's rod, a couple other things, and then it had this thing called the mercy seat on top of it. And the mercy seat was these two cherubims, and it's where, it, the Bible says it's where the presence of God would actually sit. So it would be like you could see the literal presence of God if you were allowed in the Holy of Holies. And the mercy seat was gold, and it was glistening. And, and I think the reason is because when you come to the Ark of the Covenant, the first thing your eye sees is the mercy seat. And I believe that's a prophetic picture of Jesus because when we come into the kingdom, the first thing we see is his mercy towards us, that he took on all the stuff we couldn't do for ourselves. And, and so this picture, there's a, an echoing picture here in Revelation of, of coming to the throne room of God and sitting on his lap, which is an echo of the picture of us coming to the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant and sitting in the presence of God. And it also speaks to this picture where Jesus is um, ministering and the little kids come to him. You guys remember the scripture? And the disciples are like, whoa, no, kids, kids, you're breaking the anointing, go away, right? And Jesus is going, no, 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 no. Let the little children come to me. And there's this picture of the children coming and sitting on his lap and Jesus saying, unless you become like one of these, you cannot enter my kingdom. Unless you become childlike, but I think there's a double meaning there. Unless you come and sit on the lap of mercy, you cannot actually be in his kingdom. This is what Jesus is echoing here in Revelation chapter 3. I'm going to invite you to come and feast with me, and when we feast together, you'll actually sit on my throne. Isn't that incredible? You'll actually come and sit with me, and though we don't deserve that to be our place, it becomes our place through the mercy of God. He says, just as I conquered and sat down with my throne, with my father on his throne, and to the one whose heart is open, let him listen carefully to what the Spirit is saying to you. Now to all the churches, that's what it means, to you. So my question to you this morning is, what is the Spirit of God saying to you today? It might be that there's something that you need to repent of. Maybe we're, as we're looking through these different chapters of uh, letters to the churches, you're going, man, I do that. Man, I am too self-sufficient. Man, whatever. And so maybe that's what he's saying. Maybe he's saying, I want you to focus on my mercy. I want you to receive the mercy and come and sit on my lap today. Come and take what you don't deserve, but enjoy it anyway. See, the thing is, when we sit on God's lap, we look towards our life from the same perspective that he has. When we stand here and we look at God's throne, we don't see our life the way he does because we're looking at him, correct? When we come over here and we get up into his lap and his throne with his mercy, then we can see his perspective over our life. 
And I think this is what God is saying. It's important for you to come and be on the throne with me so that you can see what I'm trying to do for you, so that you can see where I'm moving. You can see where my finger is. You can see what I want to do with your life, how I want to help you. Does this make sense? And so we cannot get that when we're positioned like apart from God. We can only get that when we're positioned with him. So here's what we're going to do to wrap up. And we're going to dive into all the symbolism and stuff next week as we get into chapter 4 through, I don't know, around 12. But what I want to do to just end today is just take a second, I don't know if you could turn on some music, Grant, and just picture yourself with the Lord and let him highlight something that he wants to say to you so that you can take away something from this, so that you can, you can experience something that he has for you that's, that's unique to you. So Holy Spirit, we thank you for the book of Revelation. We thank you for the way that it reveals Jesus to us. So right now, Father, I'm asking that you would show us what you want us to know. As we open our hearts to you, as we open our spirits to you, show us what it is that you want to say. And let's just take a second. And if you're new to listening to the Lord, it's okay. Just, just try to keep your mind focused on Jesus. And you might have a thought go through your mind that, that sounds like the Lord. It probably is. You might have a scripture or a picture. You can focus on that and ask him more questions about it. But we're just going to take a moment to just sit. the Lord highlighting just this self-sufficient thing. And maybe some of you guys have even gone to great lengths to fortify your own place so that you don't need anything from anyone. And I just want to invite you to have a conversation with the Lord about it. inviting us into the, the throne room and, and, and for those that, you know, your invitation for us to overcome and be able to sit with you. Lord, we just give you all the honor and the glory and the praise. Lord, we give you our time, our, our efforts. We give you our, our issues. And Lord, we just say we want to be like you. We want to receive what the word is saying to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you guys need prayer for anything specific, I'll be here. I'd love to pray with you. Um, and if you're interested in doing your own kind of study along, you can. Uh, we're going to be in the first couple of chapters from 4 to about 10 next week, maybe 12. So if you want to read ahead, you can do that. The last thing I wanted to say is I know that Revelation is one of those things where you might have a ton of questions about it. And uh, I'm available to help any way that I can with the questions you have. So you, the best way would be to email them to me. You can email either to the info at Bethel OKC or you can email me personally at Rachel 
just R-A-C-H-E-L at Bethel OKC, and, um, and I'll get those questions and either respond directly to you or we'll incorporate them in the message. So please don't...